Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzvah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzvah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the man of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzvah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Thus far, God's holy word for us today. Join me now as we pray together the prayer that's found in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Well, there's an outline in your worship bulletin. Uh, We're going to start with our first point. Looking back to chapter 4, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And next we're going to look 20 years past then to uh, Mitzvah in Samuel's intercession. And finally, we're going to look at the Ebenezer and see till now how the Lord has helped us. 
Well, last Sunday is a Reformation Sunday, the Sunday before All Saints Day or uh, Halloween, as we call it often today. And uh, we celebrate a, a moment of church history. Uh, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg. Um, we didn't do anything special for that Sunday. It's kind of our habit to celebrate this Sunday in our church because uh, that's when our first worship service was held after Reformation Day. And so today we are pausing because it's fitting to pause uh, and to look at the stone that has been raised up to see how far God has helped us, not only as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but as a church. We look back on 15 years and many ups and downs. Uh, we're not talking about Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, but there was one Sunday. I was actually on vacation and I get a phone call from one of our elders and he had arrived at the church and he says, this is bad, Brian. Someone has smeared poop all over the church doors. Poop. Feces. And he said, I think it was Martin Cooper in the 95 Feces. That became the, the famous... <laughs> yeah, that's the level of my humor right there. So today we will not be talking about Martin Cooper in the 95 Feces. Uh, or any other acts of vandalism, large or great, that may have occurred during our history. But the moral of this story is that church work can be dirty business. Um, and it can be. I asked uh, a number of our former members to share reflections on the last 15 years. And uh, recently, as we processed the transfer of one of our members to a new church, we added them to the list. And this list runs a little tally. And I saw that um, it's not an entirely complete list. We're not that good at record keepers. But we're pretty good. And at least on this list, we've clicked over 100 former members transferred to other churches. And it's just a reminder of how many people have passed through this church. And as, as I asked them for their reflections, more often than not, the thing they talked about was the fact, I remember in the Church of the Holy City, August summer sermons where Brian sweat through his entire robe. So we should be grateful, first of all, for air conditioning and this beautiful church we find ourselves in today. It is a real blessing. But we turn to this text of 1 Samuel chapter 7. And we see that, that the backstory here is so important. The backstory is really in chapter 4. Um, verse 7 opens with a passage of time and with a lament. The, the men of kiriath Jerem came and they took the ark of the Lord. So you recall that there's this defeat at the hands of the Philistines in chapter 4. And the Philistines capture the ark. And everywhere they take the ark, uh, the ark sort of causes havoc. Remember, they take him before uh, the temple of Dagon in Ashdod. And they put it before, and they're like, oh, well, you know, we can just do the syncretistic thing, right? This is what the Roman Empire did. This is what a lot of ancient empires did. We defeated your God. Come and live with our God. One big happy God family. But the next day, they come to the temple, and Ashdod is down on his face before the ark. This is a holy God. Even foreign idols fall on their face. They're like, someone bumped over Ashdod or Dagon last night. Let's... Uh, Let's set him up again. And the next day, there's Dagon dead, or not dead, but now face down again. But his head has fallen off, and his arms have been chopped off. It's like the Monty Python skit. It's merely a flesh wound for Dagon. And then they take him to another town of the Philistines. And the people there develop tumors, as the scriptures politely say. Now these tumors are the kinds of tumors that are very, very painful. Um, otherwise known as hemorrhoids. 
And so these people say, we have to get rid of this thing. How do we do? Let's, let's find out how to send this ark back to the Lord. And so they send it back. They, they say, we can't send it empty-handed. This is a holy God. We have to send an offering. We have to appease this God. So they send golden tumors and golden mice, representative of the plagues that this ark had brought on them, back to Israel. And that goes up uh, on with the cattle leading it back to Israel. And so as, as our passage opens... The Israelites are scared because they are falling ill. Now, like the Philistines, they are falling ill before this holy God in the ark. And so the ark goes to Kiriath-Jerim. They find Eliezer, who can have charge of it. And from that day, the ark was lodged a long time past, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So we're marking the passage of time today. Uh, Samuel marks the passage of time. The 20 years of these events were momentous. They had had lasting consequences. They had been defeated at the hands of the Philistines. And presumably, they had been under the uh, dominion of the Philistines for these 20 years. And where did that defeat come from? Hophni and Phinehas, the the elders cry out, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of the enemies. The elders of Israel blame their defeat on the Lord, and they say, Let's bring that talisman. Let's bring that magical item as a secret weapon. It used to work in all of our battles before. Brothers and sisters, this is not faith. They're blaming their defeats on the Lord. This is anti-faith. This is pagan idolatry. If God won't save us, maybe His ark will. This is the prosperity gospel. Where righteousness is the basis for God's performance. If I say the right prayer, God has to answer. God has to act. And when that ark comes in in chapter 4, there's a great cry in the camp. And the Philistines... Know the truth. They say a God has come into their camp. They know the truth that the Israelites don't know. Where was Samuel during these 20 years? Where was Samuel? From the first verse of chapter 4 to the third verse of chapter 7. His name is absent from the text. And yet the last thing we hear about Samuel. Is these words in chapter 3. And chapter 4. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. This is at the start of the 20 years. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, and for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Samuel's preaching for 20 years. And none of that word was void. Was his word in vain? Was his preaching in vain? Did he perhaps endure acts of vandalism, mockery? I wonder what Samuel thought as he preached. I wonder if he'd question the Lord, question his prophetic office, question God's promises. Now, as of today, I've preached in the pulpit of this church for 15 years. 
Uh, as I was reflecting on this personally, I realized I'm just turned 50 years old this year. So 15 years is roughly half of my adult life I've been in this call. And I'm not a prophet, and I'm certainly no Samuel. But sometimes I've wondered if my preaching's in vain. We're a small little humble church. Uh, this is a good-sized crowd in our history. In those early years, sometimes we had very, very few. And yet the text tells us that the Lord was with him, with Samuel, and none of his words fell to the ground. God's word does not return void, brothers and sisters. The preached word of God, our confessions tell us, is the very word of God. It is the instrument of the Holy Spirit for working faith New faith into the hearts of converts, but strengthening and confirming faith into the hearts of His people. That's one of the foundational principles that drove us, the original group of believers, to think about planting a new church. We were tired of visiting churches in the Washington, D.C. area and hearing jokes. Yeah, I tried to tell a joke earlier. It wasn't a good one, though. Stories, quips. Not the Word of God Preached boldly. How was the word of the Lord, the words of Samuel, working during these 20 years? And we read at the opening of our text that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This lament, brothers and sisters, is a wailing. Maybe even like an an ululation, you know, that howling you see in grief and mourning in the Middle East to this day. Now, it's not clear whether this lamenting was continuous over 20 years, here and there, occasionally, or was the end result, the final crying out, I can't take it anymore. And when things get really dark for Israel, they're finally brought to the Lord. How do they know where to turn? How do they know of His promises? Because Samuel's been preaching. He's been preaching the light of that word into the darkness. But the lament and a subsequent repentance is the fruit of Samuel's preaching. Brothers and sisters, the law of God, which we read this morning, which is a part of our preached word every day, leads us to repentance. Sinners don't know where to turn apart from God's law. They don't know their own sin. They don't know that we are dead in our sins and trespasses until the word of God and his spirit tells us. As a prophet, Samuel was a lawyer of the covenant. He was prosecuting God's people for their sins and pointing out to them that this is what the Lord said would happen when you turned away from Him. Turn back. Turn back. Turn back. And that brings us to our second point. The gathering at Mitzvah and Samuel's intercession there. Lamentation in Israel is followed by repentance, confession, a gathering for worship where the people call upon the Lord for help through their high prophet, their priest, and their king. Verse 3, we read, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. It seems to follow from what Samuel says there 
That Samuel's word had been competing for the hearts and minds of God's people with foreign gods, with Baals and Ashtaroth. Israel was under the thumb of their Philistine oppressors, but they were also under the spell of the Philistine gods, it seems. I'm guessing that this isn't the first time that Samuel had called for repentance. He'd probably been calling for repentance for 20 years. And people said, oh yeah, I'm sorry, God. Oh wait, hey, look at my little idol over there. Yeah, I'm sorry, Ashtoreth, you know, throw a little incense. These gods included gods of fertility. Gods that were worshipped through temple prostitution. Gods that were used to guarantee one's crops. Gods that, hey, you know, go make an offering to Dagon over there in Ashdod. You might get in good with your Philistine overlords. Ashtaroth, as the Bible records, uh, this god who we find in many other ancient literature as Astarte. And the thought, Luke can tell you whether or not I'm right on this, but the thought is that, that the pronunciation we find in the scriptures, Ashtaroth, implies and suggests to a Hebrew speaker shame. Not Astarte, but the shameful God. The Ashtaroth was Israel's shame. Their debauchery. And Samuel spells out what repentance would look like for Israel. And it is exactly what it should look like for us today, brothers and sisters. If you are turning to the Lord with all your heart. Samuel calls for wholehearted devotion. And this means, this must mean exclusive devotion. To trust in God is to not trust in anything else. It is to stop seeking your comfort in life, in death, in your resume. In your job prospects, in your 401k, in your spouse, in your relationships, in your children, in your parents. And to put all your confidence, all your eggs in one basket. Wholehearted devotion. There was a little sort of meme going around a few years ago. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And it's true. It could be abused, but it's true. We don't add anything to faith in Christ. Samuel says, put away the foreign gods and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Brothers and sisters, the great enemy of the church, of God's people, since the garden, Eve wanted to listen to God and the serpent, is syncretism, the blending of the religion of man and the religion of Scripture. As long as Israel blended their Yahweh worship with fertility worship, their religion was in vain. God demands exclusive worship. This is the first commandment, which is really the header of the whole Ten Commandments, and the header uh, for the worship of the Lord. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods. We read from Matthew 4. The final temptation that Jesus endures after his 40 days in the wilderness is the temptation to syncretism. Satan doesn't say, stop praying to your father. Stop doing what you're doing. He says, hey, I can give you a better life if you just bow down and worship me as well. And Jesus answers. We read there, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you, if you will but fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And this line, Him only you shall serve. Most of our Bibles that have a cross-references say, This is Jesus alluding to 1 Samuel 7.3. To worship God is to worship Him alone. And so Jesus takes the first commandment and 1 Samuel 7 and says, the true worship of the true God is exclusive worship. Samuel's call for repentance is a call for pure worship. Brothers and sisters, pure worship is at the heart of biblical faith. Pure worship is what we'll be doing for glory. We should prepare for it now. The temptation to false worship, to blended worship, is a temptation that has led to the downfall and the defeat of God's people since the very moment God wrote His covenant on the tablets of Sonat Sinai. You remember, there they are, tablets. You remember, Exodus 32, 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Claire and I were trying to go to bed the other night and it was hot and our windows were open and someone behind us was having like a home concert. I don't know. They were were singing music and it was so loud. You know, like that loud sound you're trying to go to sleep and it's like pouring through the windows at night. There's this noise coming. Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Aaron was trying to keep the people excited. He was trying to keep them engaged. Moses was gone for 40 days. So he hired a praise band. Let's sing. God's people have always wanted to have their cake and to eat it too. They want to have the Ark of the Covenant and their precious promises from Yahweh and mix it with a little ball worship, a little Astarte, a little temple prostitution, maybe a golden calf or two. Entertainment and singing have always infected the worship of God's people. After 20 years, Samuel's preaching bears fruit, teaches us to be patient. And the Spirit works and gathers the people, and they gather at Mitzvah near the site of their earlier defeat. In chapter 4, they were defeated at Ebenezer. Ebenezer appears three times in the Hebrew Bible. Chapter 4, chapter 5, and here in chapter 7. Samuel says, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Notice what happens at this worship service. First, the Ark of the Covenant is missing. They tried to bring in the little special furniture of God to use it as as a talisman. But that's nowhere to be seen. Water is drawn and poured out before the Lord. This suggests to us a ceremony of washing, of purification, a new baptism. There is fasting. The people give themselves to prayer. They acknowledge their dependence upon God alone. This is true repentance. They've finally gotten rid of those idols in their homes. There is confession. We have sinned against the Lord. There is intercession. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And as there was at Exodus chapter 20 at Mount Sinai, there is a mediator. Samuel as a priest mediates for the people. He intercedes, he prays the Lord on their behalf, and he speaks the word of the Lord to them. You see the dialogue, and there's sacrifice. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, because he was a faithful high priest. And the last time Israel gathered at Ebenezer, 
They came there, the text tells us in chapter 4, to do battle with the Philistines. They weren't there to worship. They sought to use their religion to change their circumstances. They wanted a better life for themselves. They wanted less raiding and oppression from their neighbors. They thought Yahweh ought to give it to them. They had this transformative vision. And when they were defeated, they blamed it on God. Brothers and sisters, true religion does bear a lot of fruit in the life of the world. It does lend itself towards life in a civil society. But we don't pursue true religion so we might have a civil society. I've been to a number of of right-wing conservative confabs over the years. I I used to work in government and politics in Washington, D.C. And you hear a lot of this talk. We need faith. We need Christianity. We need morals to have a strong nation. You won't have it if that's why you think you need those things. Our Lord is a holy God. This time when they gather at Mitzpah, their focus is prayer. They aren't trying to use or manipulate God as a means to an end. Word and sacrament consume them. It is all they care about. They finally have, after 20 years of preaching, wholehearted devotion to God. To Yahweh alone. Not surprisingly, the Philistines think that they're vassal people who aren't supposed to line up and gather for warfare. Their subject neighbors are gathering for a battle, attempting to throw off the yoke of their oppression. And they attack. The world always sees the worship of the true God as an attack. We are not worshiping to attack the world, but the world sees the worship of the true God as an attack on what they cherish. The world always thinks of worship in worldly terms. Why would you be religious if it wasn't for the benefits? Do you want to raise happy, healthy children? Do you want to be wealthy, independent, prosperous? But Israel didn't gather for battle. They gathered for the Lord to repent, to confess, to be forgiven. And to behold the blood of the Lamb that died for them. That their prayers might be answered. And because they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord alone, because they had a faithful high priest, their prayers were answered. And Samuel cried out to the Lord... But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth There's no doubt. Think of all the times in Israel's history when Moses, when the scriptures want to make it absolutely clear that Israel had nothing to do with the victory. What do they do? There's a loud noise. And the other people run off scared. (laughs) Jericho. Gideon runs into the camp. Breaks some jars. Flash some lights. The Lord thundered. The Lord was victorious. Brothers and sisters, at the heart of the Reformed faith, the heart of the spirit, the DNA of this church is a concern for the pure worship of the Lord. It's our desire to gather here and worship in spirit and in truth. This was the concern of the 16th century as Martin Luther and John Calvin and many Reformed Fathers took a particular focus on the purity of worship, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Especially in the Reformed tradition, we saw 
an impulse to remove statues and religious images from the house of God. There's a wonderful book, one of my favorite books on the Protestant Reformation, uh, by a Yale scholar named Carlos Ayer. He's actually a Cuban refugee. It's called War Against the Idols. How important it was to the Reformed tradition in particular to purify their worship. It was a move to restore the focus of worship, not on our own entertainment and enjoyment, not on what the marketplace is crying out for, not to try to lure people in from the world, but to what God has done for us in Christ. We are fond of bewailing how uniquely troubled the times are in which we live. Seems like this is every election, but this election, hair on fire, right? War, rumors of war. Global warming, holocaust, apocalypse. How dark, how corrupt. And we live in a dark age, don't we? We see scandal and abuse in business, in government, in schools, in society, in human sexuality. We see a rejection of the God of the Bible. And in many places, his church is oppressed. Much worse in China, the Middle East, but also a little bit here. But brothers and sisters... That is not why Christ Reformed Church was planted 15 years ago. We were planted because of the darkness we see in the church. Do we ever stop and think how many buildings there are in this town that have a cross on top of them that proclaim to be Christian churches where Christ is not proclaimed, where little talismans are brought forth to make the lives of their members better? The failure to preach Christ alone is the source of our comfort. We should lament, not the state of the world. That's none of our business, frankly. God has it. He can handle it. But the church has been given to God's people to preserve. The failure to grasp the gospel is our only comfort in life and in death. Famine of the word. That's what we see today. This is a dark age for the Christian church. That's why our work here is not easy. It is difficult. Like Israel's gathering at Mitzvah, we are gathered here as we gathered 15 years ago to hear the word of the Lord, to confess our sins, to be washed and purified, to be fed at the table, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all. It's not so hard, but we are ever tempted to blend and syncretize the lure of mission creep. This brings us to our third point. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Till now the Lord has helped us. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Samuel concludes this worship and the subsequent victory with a memorial. An Ebenezer, a stone of helping. Till now the Lord has helped us. First Samuel wanted to make it clear that this victory, this battle, was won by the Lord, not by Israel. It was not the reward for their faithfulness. It's easy for success to go to your head. I knew we could do it. No, Samuel says, this isn't your doing. The Lord gathered you here for worship. The Lord purified you. And the Lord thundered a mighty sound against the Philistines. You are powerless against your enemies. You still are. But God is mighty. God is omnipotent. God can defeat them with the sound of his creative voice. And like the thunderous noise of Jericho, a lesson that Israel had forgotten, 
where the noise of God's people struck terror in the hearts of their enemies. Now, this chapter, chapter 7, is a clear contrast to the defeat in chapter 4, 20 years ago. There, Israel trusted in themselves. They trusted in their religious furniture. They blamed the Lord for the defeat. The Philistines heard a noise of their shouting, their own celebration at the ark's presence, and then struck Israel down. The result in chapter 4, you might recall, is Ichabod. I don't know. We watched the Headless Horseman this Halloween. Ichabod. The son of Phinehas, the priest who had been slain in battle. Ichabod's name means the glory has departed from Israel. But now Israel trusts in the Lord's. The Philistines come to strike them again. But this time, the Lord strikes them down. And the result is another naming. The naming of Ebenezer. Till now, the Lord has helped us. I'm sure Samuel isn't just thinking of this battle, of his ministry of 20 years. I'm sure he's thinking of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The miraculous birth. The rescue of God's people from famine. By sending them down to Egypt. But then the rescue from bondage and slavery. The deliverance of the exodus. The conquest. So many blessings when God was trusted by his people. And one irony of this text is what follows in chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Samuel has become the new Eli. It's as if to underline the story, we trust not in princes. We trust not in priests or prophets. Human ones, that is. The elders of Israel, tired of their wayward judges, what do they do? They cry out for a king. We know how that goes. But the good news for us today is that we have even more reason to raise an Ebenezer. Not just today, but every Lord's Day. Not for 15 years or 1,500 years of God's faithfulness. But because of the help we have from our true prophet, priest, and king. And it's, it's remarkable how much Samuel points ahead to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, when Satan sought to get him to worship other gods, he turned to 1 Samuel 7. Brothers and sisters, we are weak, but he is strong. None of us can worship the Lord alone. None of us can love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us has this exclusive devotion to our Lord and Savior. But Jesus did when it mattered. And we trust in Him as the perfect substitute. He endured that temptation for us. We are not able to worship the Lord alone. But He intercedes for us. He is at the right hand of the Father now praying for His people. And when God looks at Him, He sees not a rebellious child. He sees a faithful son. This is how He helps us. This is how He has helped us till now. And to the very hour of our death. The Ebenezer we have is the body and blood of Christ. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Let's pray. Merciful God, we are so grateful that your word reveals true worship in spirit and in truth. We thank you for saints through the ages, for Samuel, for Moses, for Paul. We thank you for men and women in your church, for the Protestant Reformation, for debates in the medieval church that purified God's word and its teaching.
And we thank you, dear Lord, for the God-man, for Christ Jesus, who is the second Adam, the true worshiper, who leads us now in a heavenly train of victory, showering gifts down upon us, his church, for ministry, that we might serve the world which he came and died to save. Feed us now with this nourishing meal. Make us strong for our pilgrimage till we come at last to our heavenly rest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.